Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. I'm pleased to bring you the audio version of my most recent live stream conversation, this time with Dr. Sarah Giorgini of the Massachusetts Historical Society. Giorgini is series editor of the papers of John Adams at MHS, and she is the author of the new book, Household Gods, The Religious Lives of the Adams Family. Over the next hour, Giorgini takes us on a sweeping journey of American religious history from 17th century Puritan England through Jazz Age America, using the Adams Family as our guide. I hope you enjoy the program. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you all back for our latest Washington Library Book Talk Tuesday. I'm Jim Ambusky. I lead the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. I'm also the host of the podcast Conversations at the Washington Library, where you'll find over 100 episodes featuring conversations with leading scholars and educators working in the field of early American history. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts or check us out at mountvernon.org slash podcast. We are excited to bring you tonight's event free of charge, and as you might suspect, producing these programs is not necessarily free. So on this Giving Tuesday, I'd like to ask you to consider making a contribution to Mount Vernon. Even a gift of $25 will have a meaningful impact on our ability to continue bringing these types of programs, keep the lights on at the Washington Library, and quite frankly, keep my lights on here in Charlottesville. And so uh, if you contribute before midnight tonight, your gift will be doubled thanks to matching funds uh, from friends of Mount Vernon. So if you are in a position to give at this time, we would appreciate you doing so, and thank you very much for your support. All right. Let's get down to the main event. In November 1800, just after he moved to the new White House, John Adams composed a letter to his wife, Abigail. He concluded his letter to his dearest friend this way, I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that shall hereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under its roof. As the quote suggests, God was an ever-present force in the life of John Adams and his family, and while they hoped that Providence would smile on the United States, they were mindful that they lived in a country committed to religious freedom and increasingly the separation of church and state. So the big questions we have for tonight are, how did religion help them make sense of their American world? And how did that American world reshape their religious beliefs? Tonight, I'm very pleased to have someone on the program that can help us answer these questions. My guest is Dr. Sarah Giorgini, series editor of the Papers of John Adams at the Massachusetts Historical Society and the author of the new book, Household Gods, The Religious Lives of the Adams Family. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me, Jim. Uh, how are things up north right now? We are good. We are somewhere between spring and fall with possibly summer built in. Um, so it's been really lovely to see Boston turning green slowly but surely in these weeks. Well, that's great. It's nice to see winter finally lifting. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, before we dive in uh, to our conversation this evening, we wanted to let our audience know that they have a chance to win a copy of your book. Uh, we'll be taking your questions during the second half of tonight's program. And so if you ask a question via Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter during tonight's live stream, you'll be entered to win. And if you'd like to cop, uh, purchase a copy of uh, Sarah's book outright, check out the link that we've just dropped in our comments. Uh, you can find more information about how to do that there. Um, and Sarah, actually, before we really get in, um, you know, I'd like to let the audience know that 
In addition to your book, people can also read your work in places like the Smithsonian Magazine. Mm -hmm. And in fact, actually, uh, a few years ago, when I was just a lowly graduate student, you were, you were kind enough to interview me for an article uh, about some research I had done about King George III uh, and in his papers that I had found in Windsor Castle when I was on a Georgian Papers Program Fellowship. So I, I thought I would take the opportunity, since I have a national audience, just to say thank you uh, very much for that uh, all those years ago and uh, to encourage people to read you in the Smithsonian because it's terrific. Thank you so much. And it was wonderful to hear your insights. It's not often that you get to kind of go behind castle walls and hear what really happened. And that's something that I think the Georgian Papers program has done exceptionally well, bring the people into the past through those manuscripts. It's a terrific project. And I encourage people to check out your scholarship and a lot of the trove of scholarship that's rolled out because of it in the past few years. I think you can also help transcribe it. Um, so please check it out. That's right. If you have an interest in uh, George III, Queen Charlotte, Prince William Henry, a whole host of cast of characters, you can actually help the project transcribe those. And uh, I've been fortunate to be a part of it and uh, fortunate that Sarah has been too. And uh, God, I wish I could go back right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sarah, the, the, the main, oh, speaking of God, actually, the main title of your book uh, is Household Gods. And uh, I was wondering if you would uh, introduce us to those gods and, and what you hope to convey uh, by that uh, part of your title. Sure. When I first started researching the story of the Adams's religion over the course of 300 years. I cast around for a good title. I couldn't go with Adam's family values, that was taken. And <laughs> any other kind of idea that I had didn't quite gel until I came to the mantle of the Stone Library, which is John Quincy Adams Library that's based at the Adams National Historical Park wow. in Quincy, Massachusetts. And I stood by the mantle and I looked around at this extraordinary library. And what I was struck by was this series of busts, these Greco-Roman orators that John Quincy Adams had swept up when he was on duty as a diplomat in Paris, just before he was reunited with his family. And I thought, why did he buy these? And why were they always kept in the house, kept in the White House? Where, why did they travel everywhere that the Adamses did? Well, they were kind of totems, right, of how to build a republic on short notice. These mm. were the classical lowercase r Republican leaders who guided early Americans' thought. And I thought, well, this is really something. Why do the Adamses always call these the household gods? And what else did they have to take with them as beliefs as they traveled along? And what I came to see, not just that this material culture clue was important and was something I needed to think about in tandem with manuscripts, mm -hmm. was that the Adamses loved to encounter as many gods as they could as they made their way along the religious highways and byways of America and Europe and later Asia. So I really thought about the kinds of gods they encountered and what made their sense of religion so portable. Why did they stick with some beliefs and why did they shed others? And this to me was a very American story about how we make religion, how we make and question faith, 
and how we question and interpret other religious cultures. Well, it's interesting, and, and you sort of anticipated my next question, uh, which is, you know, this book spans, as you suggested, 300 years, uh, more or less. What did you see as the advantages of writing a multi-generational family biography as opposed to writing simply a biography of the religious beliefs of John and Abigail Adams? Well, there's been quite a bit of scholarship about the founders and their links to religion. And I, I certainly could have taken that path. But, and I think we have a slide of this, you'll see the 300 years worth of genealogy, there it is, um, that I was taking on when I did this. So the first reason as to why move beyond John and Abigail, well, quite fortunately, we have the archives to do it. At the Massachusetts Historical Society, under that roof alone, we're blessed to have about a quarter of a million manuscript pages of the Adams family papers. Wow. Things like diaries. I know, right? Wow. <laughs> diaries, letters, miscellany books, poetry, later on photographs. It's an immense archive. And I thought that really this idea of pulling a narrative from this one massive archive would help to challenge what we think we know about the story of American religion. So I could have stopped with John and Abigail, but in fact, John was the one who gave me the idea for the book. Oh. So one manuscript put this whole book in motion. When I first began work at the Adams Papers, I began as many professionals in history, documentary editing, archives, library science, and folks who are researching their family history do. I began with transcription. And my first task was to transcribe letters from a period that was, ooh, a really good one to come in on if you are a historian of American religion. And that was the summer of 1812. So it was a pretty formative era for America and for the Adamses, if you remember. So John Adams and Thomas Jefferson had rekindled their bromance on the page and were again exchanging letters thanks to Dr. Benjamin Rush's interference, I should say, his good interference. There was just a, an incredible amount of events happening in Europe um, in terms of Napoleon sweeping into Russia, you have British forces surging toward what's modern-day Michigan. Here at home, you had just political parties on the rise. You had James Madison's war bill moving rapidly through Congress. It was a pretty exciting time to transcribe. And yeah. I had John Adams giving these long monologue-like letters, kind of cranky kind of irritated with how he was being viewed and his legacy in the American Revolution was being viewed. And he had a lot to say, often about religion. And there was one particular quote that just struck me right off the bat, where he was reflecting on his family heritage. And we have a, a slide of it, I think, where he's talking about where the Adams family might be if they hadn't had religion. Sure. And he just sees them as kind of swept away and forgotten to history. And I thought, well, that didn't happen. I know that the Adamses continue to make great intellectual and cultural contributions um, well past the time that they are at the heart of political power. 
And so the second that John Adams said, you know, I believe it's religion, I thought, aha, he's throwing me a lead from 1812. And I wanted to chase it. I, I think a lot of historians and researchers feel that way. I just want to see if I can bear out what John Adams is telling me. And so that's really where my quest began. So your quest began with John Adams and finding that that juicy nugget from 1812 and John Adams. Who were the other uh, Who are the other uh, members of your uh, the Adams family that you interpret in this book? Who are your cast of characters? So they all have a last name of Adams for the most part. So to be to be clear, the story of this book stretches from the Puritan Adamses who mm -hmm. come from the southeastern part of England, the original Henry Adams the progenitor of the American Adamses, who was, in fact, a brewer. Um, he was, we know very little about him because we have very little manuscripts in his hand or with some kind of inkling of what his life was like. And for Henry's experience in 17th century England, I had to kind of do a lot of world building. And what I learned about that first Henry was three things that I could really know for sure. He brewed good beer, he married well, and he moved to America with a good library. So mm -hmm. these were the three things that I somewhat knew about him. And it told me a little bit about his socioeconomic status, his affinity for the Puritan view of religion, and his desire for emigration. And that gave me a little bit of a foothold in what that very early Massachusetts Bay life must have felt like. Um, and then our next kind of generation of Adamses, very well known, John and Abigail Smith mm -hmm. Adams um, of the My Dearest Friend letters, um, which you can read online in our digital editions for free and in our electronic archive on the Massachusetts Historical Society website. And I encourage folks to do that, if nothing else, to get a taste of what we do as documentary editors who transcribe, annotate, and index these letters. Then moving on, we have John Quincy and Louisa Catherine Adams, our sixth president, um, who is in an interdenominational marriage with an Anglo-American woman. And so we have a lot of comparisons and contrasts to think about when we see them as a dual religious portrait. Our next Adamses, and these were the ones that worried me the most going into the project, I'll say, um, were our Victorian Adamses, so Charles Francis, who is the American minister to Great Britain during the Civil War, and his wife, also named Abigail. Um, and then we move into kind of the later Victorian Adamses. Henry Adams, he of the education, a great author and cultural critic, mm -hmm. and his wife Clover, a gifted photographer, as well as Henry's little brother, Brooks. And I describe him that way, but he was in fact a great um, economist and a less well-known and perhaps lesser gifted historian than his brother, but he always felt like Henry's little brother. So I had this sort of big story I planned to tell of the family. And I thought, what if we could use one family to understand through this massive archive, what they thought religion was good for? Well, and that is a huge sweep in time and in scope of different personalities. I mean, you're, you're working from uh, the Puritan era all the way through Jazz Age America. And so I'm wondering then if you could help our viewers understand 
what was the, the specific form of Protestantism that the Adamsons to subscribe to? Uh, what, uh, what defined their religious worldviews? That's a great question. The overarching framework was providence. So something we think about as providentialism, the idea that God knows all and intervenes in human events to complete a predestined plan. This was the big sort of architecture that guided their moments, big and small. Now, John and Abigail, in addition to being providentialists, like most early Americans, were fairly liberal congregationists, congregationalists, mm -hmm. excuse me. And what they believed was that God offered a path to grace, it was up to you to accept, to exercise some free will and accept or reject it. So this was a fairly new idea that first sent some ripples through their Massachusetts churches, but eventually came to be part of what we think of very much as modern Unitarianism, where the family ended up. I would say that John and Abigail certainly refer as their political and personal fortunes change to earth as a state of trial, but it's one that every American and every human must endure. When things happened, bad things happened to the Adams family, whether it was children dying or family suffering from alcoholism or leaving the White House and heading into early retirement, John and Abigail used that prism of providentialism to say, aha, this is a lesson from God and we need to interpret it as we should and move forward um, in, in a certain way. They did also reference heaven quite a bit in their letters. There is often the idea that family would reunite in heaven um, no matter the paths that they took. So those are kind of the broad strokes of the kind of Christianity that the Adamses, especially John and Abigail, came to embrace. I'd add that over time, if I had to kind of give you a big global sweep of all these Adamses at once, mm -hmm. I'd say they were Christian, they were cosmopolitan, they were curious, and they were kind of famous for it. So people became very accustomed to welcoming them into foreign traditions, and they were always happy to leave a familiar pew. John Quincy Adams always spoke about when he was in a church, whether it was in St. Petersburg, Russia, or in Washington, D.C., or in Paris, or in London, or at The Hague, or in Quincy, he said he always wanted to be kind of the friendly foreigner in the pew, uh, welcoming someone else and trying to understand their ideas. So thinking about all the places that their minds went, in addition to all the travels they actually took, was a big challenge in writing the book. Well, I suspect so. And as a, uh, one of the things I found very delightful about your book is uh, the time you take to, to look at the ways in which, say, John Quincy Adams uh, in Russia or uh, Henry Brooks abroad, they were constantly... Uh, interested in and evaluating different religious faiths and, and turning to their diaries in particular uh, to make note uh, of those different faiths, but also their own, to try to understand how that uh, reflects back on them and how it's reshaping their own sense of the religious world. And you had talked a little bit about uh, your role as a documentary editor there at uh, Mass Historical. I wonder if I could ask you to talk a little bit about 
the diaries you work with. The Adams family were famous for keeping diaries. Uh, sure, they wrote countless letters, hundreds of thousands of letters, but the diaries, in, in a lot of ways, are where they sometimes express uh, their deepest, darkest thoughts. And they, and when they're, you know, grappling with matters of faith and uh, crises of religion. And so, you know, what did you make of those diaries as you were probing them? So within the Adams papers, we have a number of diarists. John Adams is a pretty fitful diarist. Mm -hmm. You can read his inner thought online. And some of them are really fun because when he's a young man teaching school in the suburbs, he has a little bit of a, a clear life crisis. And you get a lot of you know, kind of smoking, not knowing what he's going to do with his life, kind of down on his job. So it's a really interesting look at young John Adams in his earliest career period, if you look at his diary. Abigail somewhat keeps a diary when she's abroad, again, very fitfully, but it does give us her first impressions of encountering French thought and culture in the 1780s. And that's kind of interesting. But really, I have to say, the champion diarist of the Adams family is John Quincy Adams. And oh, yeah. we do have a digital edition available, his, you know, 50 odd volumes that he kept throughout the course of his life, which are just remarkable. Because when you think about John Quincy Adams as this incredibly diligent diarist, you also remember the soundtrack of nation building that accompanied his day. So here's a kid who grows up in the era of declaration, has an entire career as a diplomat and a president and a sometimes poet, and dies in an era of disunion. So for many people, his diary serves as quite literally a bookend, right, to two different parts of the American experience that are so important for us, I think, to think about and reinterpret today. Now, the diaries of the other kind of later Adamses are perhaps not quite as in-depth, mm -hmm. um, and some of them were destroyed, so we can't wholly know what we're missing there. I will say that when it comes to John Quincy Adams' diary, that was remarkably rich for me because sometimes I would find little hints and clues about what he was reading in the Bible or what he had taught his son with regard to Psalms or little snippets of the poetry that he tried to write in between sessions of Congress which is kind of interesting too. So I was really interested going into the diary to think about what we had and what we don't have. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing for any historian working with a huge archive. It doesn't matter how big it is, you need to listen to the silences as well. And so I was just as interested in what Louisa Catherine Adams had to say in her diary um, at the same time that her husband was writing. And often I get very different views. They both very much like to give sort of lay criticism of whoever they heard in the pulpit. And sometimes they disagreed on what they thought of a certain preacher or they thought differently about a different denomination um, than I expected. But I think that the diaries are a remarkable source when you consider the silences and you fit them together with two other things. Correspondence, mm -hmm. right? So the, the dialogues that are happening outside a journal 
and also with just the greater culture. So what's the context that they're writing within? That became something that was a running thread in writing Household Gods. How do I keep up with explaining and framing three centuries worth of American thought and culture as it happens? And it was a really exciting thing to do. So can you tell us or maybe give us an example of the ways in which the cultural context is forcing the Adams to interpret religion in a certain way or to apply religion in a certain way. I mean, as you say, your book spans the Puritan uh, adventures. Uh, We move into the revolution, the early republic, urbanization, industrialization, civil war, uh, the advent of Gilded Age capitalism, all of these massive transformations that take place over the course of these three centuries. Uh, What did you find? How were they dealing with these? You know, they didn't always deal well. So religion was sometimes a coping mechanism for them. Sometimes they felt that providence disappointed them and let them down. They'd done everything they could do to be good Christian citizens, which is something that, a phrase that reverberated throughout the early republic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's something, excuse me, that you see in newspapers, in novels, in plays, in artwork. You see it all across that early period. And to see the Adamses really question and contend with the faith that they inherited was something that just brought the early 19th century fully into bloom in my head, especially even looking back at the revolution. So there's a period when John and Abigail are exchanging letters. Mm-hmm. Um, he's at the Continental Congress. She's giving some rich, colorful reportage of what's going on often. And John Adams writes this incredible letter, and I think we have a slide of it, where he says, you know, we must depend upon providence, it's providence, or we fail. And I thought, okay, that's a pretty strong statement, and I understand it's within the providentialist vein of how early Americans are speaking. Sure. But as a documentary editor, I'm also trained to think about who's on the receiving side of that letter, Mm -hmm. right? So I thought, Abigail opens this, and she must think, what confidence, you know, you're not seeing what I'm seeing. And when she writes back, um, it's a particularly striking letter that she writes back um, describing, there it is, she describes losses at the Battle of Bunker Hill, which are personal and grievous. They include the family physician, Dr. Warren, and others. And Abigail, you know, it's a very famous letter for her war reporting, but the interesting thing that she does is just sort of thread scripture through it. She makes an allusion to Ecclesiastes. She offsets some of the worst of the news with scripture, explaining, you know, Charleston is laid in ashes, but God is our refuge. So they're trying out this language and how to use it. And I think that understanding that religion is a cultural tool in this period. It's also a way to keep the family together. It functions on a personal and political level. Those were all things that really came home to me by using these letters. Well, I'd like to pick up on that thread for just a moment because one of the other interesting uh, discussions you have in your book, and I think actually there's a slide of this as well, is there's a quote from Abigail where I believe she's uh, writing to uh, Louisa Catherine her daughter-in-law, uh, and she says something to the effect of, I'm not a theologian. I'm more interested in how uh, religion is applied. I'm completely butchering that entire quote, but here it is on your screen. You know, I, I love this idea of what can we reason, but from what we know. 
And so it seems like they accept the fact that there are mysteries uh, that they may never know, but if they can see something in front of them, they can figure out how to apply it. Yeah, so let me take that letter in two parts, because I think there's two things going on here. The first thing is, what a great example of what we often like to call Enlightenment Christianity. Mm -hmm. This way that late 18th century and early 19th century people are able to fuse together somehow, some way, and not always in a lasting way, precepts of Christianity and science. So this idea that reason and faith are not exclusive, that you can bind them together. Remember, Abigail says that there is nothing else more binding upon the humane mind than religion. Mm -hmm. And so the second thing about this that I think is really interesting is that Abigail once again epitomizes the Adams brand when it comes to understanding religion. As a group over time throughout this book, the Adamses are interested in theology, but rarely invested in it. So I had the opportunity to build a story <clears throat> that was more about the voices of the laity, less about what the clergy had to say. And that was a really exciting moment for me. The last thing I'd say about this, and this is something always, again, I think about is, what is Louisa's life like when she opens this letter, right? So, I mean, yeah. she's on the cusp of stepping into this role as a major Washington, D.C. hostess, right, hosting her sociables and really putting forth her own brand of the Adams political ideology. One might say even starting her husband's campaign for the White House mm -hmm. at this point. And I thought, you know, this is really interesting because Louisa Catherine's sense of religion is slightly different than Abigail's, but the fact that they're even having this kind of conversation tells us something about how these two generations of early American women are receiving, interpreting, and passing along religious precepts. And that's interesting to me. I don't want to lose ever that understanding of, here's a conversation we should be eavesdropping on even more as scholars in the archives. Well, maybe picking up on that point, I mean, you mentioned earlier that Louisa Catherine uh, was born in England and she was of a, a different denomination than John Quincy. I mean, what is their relationship like? Uh, what is her relationship like with the, the rest of the Adams clan, uh, including her husband, as they, as they are welcoming her into their family uh, and they are discussing these very important ideas about uh, religion? So Louisa grows up in Tower Hamlets, which at the time, in the shadow of the Tower of London, was a pretty middle-class neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And she does very well for herself snagging the very eligible uh, president's son and is immediately really trashed in the press because of it. There's a great fear that her father, who has had some great financial trouble, has also engineered his daughter to be a bit of a gold digger here when the truth couldn't be farther. And <clears throat> Abigail, I think, does not make Louise's entree into the family any easier. <laughs> um, it's a hard act to follow when Abigail Adams is your mother-in-law. And I think that Louisa Catherine felt that keenly. She did manage to carve out her own niche within the family. And she became quite close and wrote some extraordinary journal letters back and forth with her father-in-law, John Adams. And that's mm -hmm. a, a wonderful trove for folks to read. Um, but 
she had had a very different religious upbringing. She was nominally Anglican, mm-hmm. maybe, but they weren't the greatest churchgoers at home in London. When she came here, uh, she did not wholly embrace Unitarianism. She found, she called it a bit cloudy and hazy, and she was not wholly sure of whether or not to embrace her Yankee kin's ideas. Mm-hmm. When she went to Washington, D.C., she encountered Methodism and found it a bit too rhapsodic in its preaching. And she, like many Americans, was a little hesitant to embrace newer religious groups like the Shakers. But she struggled very much with a desire to build religious toleration within herself. And Mm -hmm. we see that in her letters. She'll, She'll start in a letter to John Quincy saying something rather colorful and cruel about the Shakers, and then she'll kind of self edit as she goes, which is interesting to see. And I think that's something that's very relatable for a lot of people. It's important to remember that most Americans meet new religious ideas through other people. Mm-hmm. And so she's, she's constantly having that battle of how to understand where other people are coming from, whether they're Adamses or not. Sure, sure. And one of the things that's fascinating, I think, about your book is that there is a, a, a sort of constant quest, I, I, I might say, amongst the Adams family to reconcile their own personal religious views with what we might call the civic religion, the small r republicanism. And so how, how did they try to adopt or meld uh, their particular sense of faith or their piety to uh, the transforming nature of republicanism and, and the ways in which the United States becomes a more democratic uh, in character uh, people over the course of the 19th century? So this is a great question because ultimately trying to imprint New England Christianity on people is what John Adams believes costs him another term. Mm. So in the 1790s with Franco-American relations deteriorating, he calls nuns but twice for a fast day. And these proclamations were usually something that people heard in April or November. It was a colonial right. Your governor, your local church, uh, the king previously could call this kind of thing. Washington certainly did so. But people were really ticked off that John Adams did it under the pretense of a diplomatic feat. Uh Um, The reason for being in intimate talks with God was a good one for most people. They saw him not as someone who was trying to be a godly Republican, but as a Republican who had just a very private, intimate knowledge of how to get God to America a certain way in foreign relations. And this just absolutely backfired on him. Um, Protesters showed up at his door. Uh, He had to call for supplies and servants and arms and Undeterred, not having learned his lesson at all, called a second fast day. So he, he believed that this attempt to bring old New England right of Christianity, which he thought everyone did, mm-hmm. um, to the national arena, just completely did not translate. Um, so that's one way. The second way that we see the Adamses sort of engaging in this whole religion that you're talking about comes with John Quincy Adams. And here, what's fun about John Quincy Adams is we have this treasure trove of diaries and 
letters, but we also have an idea of how to follow his money. And that's something I did uh, for his Washington, D.C. years, because I was curious how many pews he owned. And he owned a pew in was served as a trustee in several different denominations in Washington, D.C., and he moved through them. So he'd be at a Catholic church one week, he'd be at a Presbyterian church, another, and he'd be rotating. And this is incredibly savvy if you're a politician and you need to have your all of your constituents see how Christian you are in order to be elected. So there's definitely some politicking that John Quincy Adams achieved, and he did so having learned the lessons that his father didn't. I, one of the things I loved about uh, John Adams is he always sticks to his guns, but then you know, JQA, he was always very good about seeing what happened before, and maybe maybe we'll take a different course this time uh, to greater success. <laughs> Sarah, I have one last question for you before we move on to audience questions, so please, folks, if you're out there uh, watching this this evening, get your questions ready. Uh, uh, Sarah, my, my, uh, my last question for you is that you wrote in your introduction that we can understand the founding era, or in particularly important historical figures like the Adams family, uh, through religion in ways that we can't generally, uh, through political biographies or social biographies. Um, and you, you really want to sort of lead the charge to help reinterpret a lot of that period and a lot of these famous historical actors through religious biography. So you know, what are we missing by not including religion or developing more religious biographies uh, to help tell these stories? I hope we see lots of family histories of religion. I think this is something that everyone can kind of dive into and certainly explore with the resources that we have now. With regard to the Adamses, I hope to take a very familiar cast of characters and get into their inner lives and reintroduce them. And I think what we see is that American religion has quite a few more paths to explore. When scholars tell the big arc of the early American religious experience, there's a narrative that we know, and it's, it's Puritans melding into Congregationalists, moving into liberal Protestantism, experimenting with Catholicism and non-Western beliefs, maybe a dash of atheism as we turn to the 20th century. And I thought that was the story that I was going to tell. And I thought that I would have a couple of hinges for sure. I thought I would have some iconic preachers. I would have the story of voluntary associates. I would have moments of evangelical awakening. And as I moved through each generation, the hinges fell off because often it was something very local that was epic in forming the Adams's religious beliefs. It was something that they encountered that I didn't even think about mm -hmm. as a major milestone or an event that we want to consider. And so not to give away any spoilers, but this is a book about a family that takes 300 years to commit. Yeah. So that's how long it takes before they finally sign a covenant in public. They have a covenant in their minds all along. It's constantly shifting and changing. And that's the story I hope to tell. And I think what we get out of that is a new understanding of the family as a place to understand religion. Because 
churches and clergy cannot control the religious memories that families pass along. And it's in the family where religious ideas are inherited, dated, reinvented, and renewed. And I thought that was a really interesting idea to put forth. So I'd say, go forth and find out your family histories, because that's certainly something that is a wellspring um, for scholarship in religion and other fields. Well, you certainly have me persuaded. And uh, you've written a wonderful book, and I think you make quite clear that religion is not uh, a, uh, a fixed point or a destination. It isn't very much, in fact, the journey. Uh, my, my journey here in asking you questions is at an end, and let's open it up to audience questions and see what's on people's minds. Uh, Geraldine would like to know, did John and Abigail pass on the religious beliefs to their children and grandchildren? They absolutely did. And, you know, some of that was in the letters and some of it was that life between the manuscripts that we have to look for. Mm -hmm. So we have a sense of the Adamses as people who read the Bible at home, who taught children to sing songs who drilled them on those psalms as well as part of their education. And then we have something else, which I would love to talk about, which is the way they curated their home at that park in Quincy. So there's really wonderful. I know we often talk about religion as, you know, reading, writing, doing, but how else do you cultivate piety? Mm -hmm. And one of the most extraordinary finds that I had in researching household gods was walking through the Adams National Historical Park and trying to that site in a way that was useful. And one of the things that I found really interesting was in what was eventually Brooks's bedroom. Um, it was a very small fireplace with these beautiful Delft ivory tiles that sort of border it. And Abigail had brought them back um, from, or had them sent, sent from the Netherlands and looked really closely at to bend down and kind of peer in. Mm -hmm. And what you notice first is that in this child's bedroom, every single square is a Bible tale. Wow. And the idea is that long before a child can read, they're sitting by a fire on a cold New England evening and that image is imprinted almost immediately, right? Mm -hmm. Of different visualizations of Christian ideas and beliefs. And I thought, oh, this is how you curate religion. And, and Abigail did that. So I think part of that passing on, that's such a great phrase, Geraldine, because it's that passing on takes so many forms. There's manuscripts, there's culture, and then there's thinking about what the next generation then passes on in turn. So the home itself is an archive, uh, like a manuscript or anything else you know, of that nature. Thank you very much, Geraldine. Nancy would like to know, did John and Abigail have a family minister who was nearby, or did the minister travel and may not have been there when they had a great need? Oh, that's a good question. So ministers certainly did travel, but in John and Abigail's period, um, for the most part, they had the same minister all the way through. And this was a, a man named Anthony Ward for much of their um, duration in Peacefield. And I have to tell you, Nancy, I looked hard for Anthony Wybird, and I was, I was really upset because unlike most 18th century sermon givers, he didn't print any. 
And I thought, oh, this is terrible. Because I had this wonderful quote from Abigail. She said, you know, he's only got 10 sermons. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could find some of those? And I was speaking to some of the ministers who've worked at United First Parish Church, which is kind of the descendant church, has been the Adams's church for so many years. And very fortunately, they gave me the clergy view on this, which is, he was the minister there for so long precisely because he didn't publish. So he didn't get involved in any controversy. He kept his job. So that was really useful to be able to talk to ministers then and now. I would say that the the minister at their church was, you know, a couple of blocks away. It's not very far. When you visit the Adamite, you can also visit the United First Parish Church, which does a wonderful job um, of touring folks through and seeing the crypt where the Adams presidents and their wives are buried. I'd really recommend seeing it. Um, that said, most New England ministers um, would settle for a low salary and a lot of firewood because it's cold up here. You would need that in New England, certainly. Thank you very much, Nancy. Uh, next question. Uh, each generation reevaluated. Uh, each generation reevaluated accepted belief systems in the context of the times. Were there crises of faith? That's a terrific question. Ooh, I love that question because I think every day brought some kind of crisis of faith for them. In fact, we've talked a lot about John and Abigail and John Quincy and Louisa Catherine. But can I say something about the Victorians for a moment? Um, because for me, Charles Francis Adams, who I worried, this is, I said, this is the chapter I worried about the most because I thought he'd be kind of vanilla and bland. And in fact, he had a lot of inner turmoil and he was my favorite sort of melancholy, narcissistic, messed up Victorian to follow on his religious journeys. And he had this crisis of faith that again, here's something where I have to build in some cultural context when um, disease hit, mm -hmm. um, he was very worried for his family. He put in extra Bible drills. He wrote a very lengthy analysis of the Sermon on the Mount in his miscellaneous diary. He sort of held family close. I've been thinking a lot about Charles Francis in the last couple of weeks as we've endured this unique new world that we're in now. Sure. And one of the things that Charles Francis did so well was encapsulate a feeling that a lot of Americans had at this point. He had this one line that I will not forget where he just wrote, what I should be. And that summed up to me a crisis of faith where I heard one. Yeah. So how do you fix something like that? Well, Charles Francis lived through the Civil War. One of his sons fought in it. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly that stirred up a great deal of anxiety for him and for family. He had his best to pray through it. Um, but I think we'd acknowledge that Charles Francis and his sons came out of it with their providentialism broken. That is the greatest cause of faith for most Americans in the 19th century. This idea that God would not intervene for North or South mm -hmm. and God would not have caused this kind of disunion. This was not the kind of America that had planned on. So there's a, a lot wrapped up in Charles Francis when it comes to crisis of faith. That question of am I what I should be is, is a great one, I think, to reflect on. Oh, sure, sure. 
That was a terrific question. Thank you very much. Let's see what we have next here. Oh, Serena Zabin, uh, guest a couple weeks ago. In what ways was the Adams sense of religious uh, communal as well as individual or uh, familial? Hi, Serena, author of a wonderful Boston Massacre book, and thank you so much for asking about the Adams's sense of community. I was just watching your interview today and thinking about how well you defined family and those personal and political levels, and I was thinking about the communal aspect of it. So these is very much saw their church, their capital C congregationalism and its practice as something that was a microcosm of what the United States could look like. So there was room for reason, there was room for science, there was room for Christianity, there was room for inquiry and progress. There was also, in the day-to-day, a vetted interest in people's well-being. They came out of a lineage of New England meeting house culture, right? So a church was where you voted, There were elections, there was surgery, it was where everything happened. And that never really left their minds, especially in John and Abigail's day. The idea was the church that you went to was not just where you prayed, it was also where you magnetized to what the community needed. So they would do the same things that other New Englanders would do. When it snowed, they would shovel out the pricier pews. And it was time to put in money for evangelization efforts. They slipped in some money into the bucket. They certainly were engaged in the process of finding rectors and employing clergy. And they were incredibly interested in thinking about future of America in a religious context. So it was really important that that little microcosm, that little local church, embody everything as a building block of the new nation. Thank you very much, Serena. Mike would like to know, are any of the Adams's Bibles surviving? Yes, <laughs> they absolutely are. And oh, Michael, there are so many. <laughs> um, this was something that I loved looking for. You can see John Adams books, which are mostly held at the Boston Public Library digitized really want to go to that stone library, the Adams National Historical Park in Quincy. And there you will find Bibles in a number of languages, um, including Hawaiian, which is my favorite, and the Amistad Bible that was presented as payment for John Quincy's legal fees, um, which is a wonderful story of its own that would probably take another hour. But I would encourage folks to go and see that. Those Bibles aren't necessarily marked up. There's not a lot of marginalia. Um, But what I became, especially when I was looking at the Victorian Adamses going forward into the 20th century, was physically where those Bibles might have been. So I was interested in how close was the Bible to Brooks when he woke up? It was in his side drawer. Okay, which one? It's not the one that's the big fancy one that's in the library. So I was very interested in you know, the versioning of what they looked at and the books that they read alongside the Bible as well. You'll also find a Quran there um, and a lot of other religious writings. John Adams was exceptional in his exploration of an Egyptian customs, not always kind or wholly understanding as we'd want to be now, 
but certainly someone was years ahead of where comparative religious studies were in higher education by a half century or more. So yes, there's plenty of Bibles, and John Adams very clearly said that that was not the only book to read and encouraged his children to read as widely as they could in other religious traditions. Well, thank you very much, Michael. And actually, I have a follow-up question to that, if I may. Uh, you mentioned the Amistad case, the very famous uh, uh, slavery case that John Quincy Adams argued before the Supreme Court in the mid-19th century. And so I was wondering, what is the relationship between uh, John Quincy's uh, religious faith and his anti-slavery and abolitionist impulses? This is such a great question because John Quincy Adams has a very complicated and lengthy arc of understanding when it comes to race and slavery. He's someone who moved from the Jeffersonian emancipation vision to becoming a more strident anti-slavery advocate, as we know, overturning the gag rule in Congress. And where that played is in the pages of his diary. I think we actually have an image of his diary um, for the Amistad case, where he's talking about this internal wrestling that he does mm -hmm. over how far he can take this crusade. And he's incredibly concerned that, you know, he's too old to do it, that there are people who are better qualified, that isn't Adams, that doesn't necessarily help him. Remember that the Adamses are at the heart of political power for over a century. That doesn't mean they're terribly popular. So he has a lot of concerns over whether or not he should push forward with the cause. And what he ultimately says is that no matter his personal sacrifice, mm -hmm. no matter the cost, he needs to, as a good Christian, do everything that he can um, to end slavery and the slave trade. Well, and thanks for letting me ask that follow-up. And thanks to Michael for your previous question. We have time. Uh, for two more questions, Douglas Bradburn would like to know, did JQA comment on the religious practices, beliefs of his cabinet members? Oh, Doug, I wish it. I, <laughs> I'd have to dig a little bit more in the diary for that one. Um, but he certainly, I think he commented more on himself. To be honest with you, I think his diary was more of a mirror than a political commentary. It's, it's a great question, though, and it's the same for John Adams. The place to look, though, might actually more Louisa Catherine. She might have been a little more freewheeling with her personal opinions about her, her, her husband's colleagues. Um, but I will have to do a little more digging in the diary on that one. There's your next research project. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Doug. And last question to Lindsay, what was your favorite primary source that you discovered in the course of your research? Uh, thank you, Lindsay. That's a wonderful question. And for folks who are fans of cabinet history, be sure to check out Lindsay Trevinsky's Insider Guide to Washington Speaking of the Cabinet, which is out now. It's really excellent. Um, I'd like to think that the favorite primary source was something that maybe comes last in the book, if I may. Um, that was Henry Adams' photographs of Japan, which is something I just didn't expect to be writing about. I was constantly surprised by this in turns that the Adams' religious travels took me on. And I tried as much as I could to kind of actually walk where they walked and go to 
the churches and the cities that they did. I didn't have a chance to Japan and I had because Henry Adams' explorations of Buddhism there were fascinating. And the way that he curated them through a wholly new medium of photography just added a layer of excitement to my narrative, which had been pretty manuscript heavy at that point. And I was so excited to show people Henry's struggle to understand this faith. So much of Household Gods was about encounters, not necessarily the Adamses showing any mastery of these religious ideas, but showing their boundless curiosity to deepen that cosmopolitan Christianity and be welcomed into foreign traditions. And really going through those photographs of his waters in the South Seas, which are absolutely exquisite and just about right to to look on a, a cold spring day, I would say they're online at the MHS. They certainly give you a sense of someone encountering the other and trying to befriend it or understand it. And that really became, as an early Americanist, I was delighted to get into photographs, um, to travel around a little too with the Adamses. Yeah. It's not something we often do as we get photographs in the, in the uh, era in which we work, but uh, <laughs> that was a nice change of pace. Well, Sarah, I mean, I'll ask one final question. Uh, you know, the chair's prerogative. If people want to actually read the primary sources that you've been talking about, in addition to reading your book, where can they do that? So all of the primary sources that I'd point to are most the Adams Papers digital editions. Mm-hmm. I'd also recommend the Adams National Historical Park in Quincy and the United First Parish Church as places to visit. The scholarly there of rangers and do really a beautiful job of introducing you to the early American experience with an Adams accent. Uh, So I think those would be wonderful places for people to visit. That sounds great. And I'm sure we'll have folks headed that way uh, once uh, they can safely do so. Well, Sarah, thank you very much uh, for joining me this evening. This has been a real treat for me. I'm glad to see you again. And I'm, I'm sure this has been a real treat for our audience. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for joining us tonight. As a reminder, if you'd like to purchase a copy of Sarah's book, we'll drop the link again here in the comments. Uh, be sure to tune in next week on May the 12th at 7 p.m. when Washington Library Executive Director Kevin Butterfield interviews Dr. Colin Calloway, who was the winner of the 2019 George Washington Book Prize for the book The Indian World of George Washington, The First President, The First Peoples, and The Birth of the Nation. I want, and I want to tell you about a special event exclusive only to Mount Vernon members that we've got coming up on May the 11th. On May the 11th, Mount Vernon President and CEO Doug Bradburn will have an hour-long conversation about the American Revolution and George Washington with Pulitzer Prize-winning historian George uh, Joseph Ellis. To learn more about this special event, go to mountvernon.org backslash livestream. Special thanks to Sarah Steo, Jeanette Patrick, and Sam Snyder, who worked behind the scenes this evening uh, and made everything possible. I'm Jim Ambusky reporting in from Charlottesville. Good night and good luck. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hildebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, you may do so by making a contribution to Mount Vernon. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.